Welcome to Mosaics, a podcast featuring the vibrant and diverse stories of refugee resettlement in Idaho. I'm your host, Holly Beach, with the Idaho Office for Refugees. Meet Winnie Christensen, founder and director of Culture for Change Foundation, headquartered in Twin Falls, Idaho. Winnie's nonprofit is focused on empowering women, girls, and Idaho youth. Winnie is also the president of the Urban Cultural Fashion Show and co-founder of the Refugee and Women of Color Coalition, and she serves as a board member of the Magic Valley Arts Council. Winnie is also a captivating storyteller, and she's working on some international projects right now with Culture for Change, so I'm really excited to dive in with her. Welcome, Winnie, to Mosaics. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me to your beautiful fabric of wealth and information. Oh, thank you. I like that way of saying it. (laughs) Well, please just tell us a bit about yourself and help us to get to know you a bit better. Oh, sure. Well, as you've heard, my name is Winnie Christensen. I reside in Idaho. I'm an immigrant of Idaho. And I don't know, I've been here long enough that I am a meat and potato girl. (laughs) And I believe in investing in our community, not only financially, socially, emotionally, and reinvesting it as it will impact our future generation and future leaders. Something else I love, my love language is of service. Because people invested in me when I came in this country, they saw a gem in me or something in me and they helped polish me. I'm not sure if I'm shiny as much yet, but I would love to pass it forward and the other gems in the community and we all of us join hands and polish them and let's shine bright since we are the gem state. Oh, I like that. The gem state. Yes. So tell us a bit about your immigration journey. How old were you and what was that like for you? Oh my goodness, my journey began, my mom letting me know that I will come and live with her. And so I started practicing my American accent, which involved holding my nose. I don't know if you understand this or people do understand this, but American accent is very nasally. Mm to an extent. So my friends and I would gather because I'm going to come and live in America. And (laughs) I would watch movies like Home Alone and Greece and all that. I was prepped for my American journey and my accent. Well, when I came to America, it was pretty different. It wasn't the New York lights. I, I, the airports, I loved it. And then I got to Boise. I'm thinking, oh, okay, not bad, not bad. And then I got to Mountain Home. I'm thinking, ah, uh, no, this isn't the America I've envisioned and practiced for. And then I kept going when I ended up in Blackfoot. I'm thinking, nope, I've been lied to. But because <laughs> it's very rural there, right? Lots of dairy. It's very rural, yeah. But then at the same time, it was such a comfort for me. It was home away from home. There was farm lands and the people are way friendly. The schools, I had a lot of culture shock, I have to say, because the English that we had was the King's English, which is the British. Kenya was a British colony. And I would say things like cutlery and mm. serviette and cro- crockery instead of dishes. So say, oh, can I uh, can I get some crockery? And I thought, what, what do you mean crockery? <laughs> like crock of this? Uh, no, no, I'm not you pressing. It's actually, <laughs> no, I meant crockery. <laughs> I meant dishes, you know. And then I it didn't dawn on me that actually I was black per se until I I was in the school system. That's when I felt it. I, I, it's not that I did not know, but you grow up in a country with a black president uh, and an and, and Indian entrepreneur from the country of India and uh, 
person in this business. So it's, it was emerged. I was surrounded with so much diversity that I never felt nobody pointed out I'm black. Mm-hmm. But when I got to Blackfoot or Idaho, I felt it. I felt black. Mm. Which, yeah. And then uh, down the line, I should have watched uh, Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> Dynamite. That was the movie that I should have prepped for yes. to get me ready for uh, Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Yes, oh. yes. But all in all, I would say that I the introduction to my American journey wasn't as rough as others, but it was pretty difficult. There's a lot of cultural shock, a lot of emotional labor in terms of education. I've never been in so many dates in my life, a lot of ice cream dates. You know, in Kenya, when you're dating, you're, you, you don't date at your father's house. You, If you're dating, you're dating in the intent of marriage. Here, mm-hmm. you're dating just because you're getting to know each other. That was a lot. <laughs> Ah. Yeah, the education system for me was very different. Who gives you a study guide? It's like a cheat sheet for your life. So huh. that was very that was very um, interesting to figure out that you get a study guide so you concentrate on different discipline while you're uh, prepping for the exam, which I thought was easy. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. then down the line, you get complacent. Interesting. What grade were you when you came to Idaho? Which grade did you join at that well, point? Well, the thing is, there's not a definite answer to that because I'd come and go, come and go. But in high school, that's when we decided that it was better for me to come here so I could secure a better education system. Which you in found to be easier. Which I found I was better because then I have the best of both worlds, I'll say. Kenya builds you up to be very tough. You don't know where the test is going to come from or the lifestyle. So there's some things I love about Kenya and I appreciate it and some I don't. And then in America, there's some things I love and appreciate and some I don't. So Mm -hmm. that's why I like this. The study guide was a good one. (laughs) But then it got me complacent and then I didn't follow through sometimes. You mentioned that that was the first time you really thought of yourself as black. And can you explain that a little more, what that was like for you and what moments led to that? The moment I felt I was black is it was one simple trip to Walmart. And the little girl kept looking at me and she wouldn't stop. And I thought, what do I have something in my face? Do I have something in my nose? It's, or am I not dressed appropriately? I was so, and she's such a little girl, very innocent. Then she said, mom, a chocolate girl. I'm like, huh? Chocolate? And she was asking me if I was sweet. And I think she wanted to lick me. I'm not so sure. It was weird. But then then she was so innocent that I thought, oh, my gosh, my color is different. Mm. Then I went home and and started doing more research thoroughly done in Kenya. Because in Kenya, you'd learn different kinds of histories uh, all over the world. That was a requirement. Then I dug deep and realized that the exposure in different communities in different people of color is not there. And we were one of the few families in Blackfoot that were black. Mm-hmm. And that was my, it was such an innocent act that that was my wake up call. And then I'd get some racist remarks that I did not know they were racist. People get a little bit passive aggressive, but then I wouldn't understand that was bad or that was good. Or when I was in school and I'll get asked, oh, do you guys wear clothes? 
or how did you manage to come to America? At some point, I had gotten so fed up about it. I told the class one day that, oh, one day I was wearing my favorite outfit, which is a coconut, coconut. Uh, for my bra, which is very comfortable, by the way. And I was wearing my size skirt and I saw the airport. I'm like, oh my goodness. So I jumped from tree to tree and I went to the airport and I'm like, hey, I want to go to America. Can you let me in? And they were like, oh my goodness, you're so pretty. You're so awesome. Let us go to America. And that's how I ended up here. And half the class believed that. Oh my gosh. Then I realized, oh my goodness, that was also my eureka moment with my line of work right now that the information that I had saved through that because I was so dis, um, fed up with some of the mm-hmm. questions not because they had ill intent but the lack of know-how but to me there was so much emotional labor for it yeah and so when I had said that and they believed it I realized oh my goodness it's really not their fault it's what has been marketed to them. And even though by then, when you Google, you don't see what I grew up with. You see a different element. Mm-hmm. And I had also joined the debate team. A teacher had saw something in me. Her name is Cherie Clawson and had me do debate team. I was in the debate team. And so I took that as an initiative to start teaching people uh, cultural education and wellness around the world, especially Kenya. Well, Kenya is about what it means to be A, B, and C, and you could see their eyes. And it was so captivating at lunch. I'd be surrounded and I'd be telling them stories about where I came from, about, yes, we don't all live in mad hats. There's bungalows, there's there's the story houses and all that. And it's as if I was a storyteller around the campfire, but, now it was during lunchtime or break time, educating them about the continent of Africa. And then I felt, yep, yeah, I guess I'm different. Mm. <laughs> but it was my eureka moment. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about the storytelling as a very powerful piece and you continue to be a storyteller today. And I recognize you did say the extra emotional labor it took for you as a student to be that mm-hmm. cultural ambassador that if yeah. they had had other avenues of education and exposure, exposure, you wouldn't have had to carry that on yourself. But yeah. you saw that lack and you stood, you know, you rose to that occasion in a way that you saw as, I think, a very empathetic and compassionate way. Um, but you did have to carry that extra emotional burden for mm-hmm. you. How did you balance that? I think I needed a way to cope with how different I felt. Mm. And this was a way for me in especially high school to understand them. It was a bridging of a gap together. Mm -hmm. Because if I am experiencing something, I could have someone, I could ask someone, and then they could help me through and navigate through my life. And then I would do that for them. So we, we weaved this bridge of information and togetherness and wellness that made me feel comfortable in such a small town where it's predominantly white and a Native American. And so I got to learn about this one culture and this one culture and the pains and the sufferings of this one culture, the this of this one culture, finding common grounds together. So it was more of pre pro yeah, that, yeah yeah that's the word yeah pretty cool pro but then I realized that I I had privilege that was a set and when people say privilege it's different but for me I realized it was a privilege for me because I had that uh, experience of help and assistance and my mom was there 
And there are some people that were, are not as lucky as I was uh, to be surrounded in that small community that was more loving than the hate I would get. Mm -hmm. So when I got to the university in college, I was already comfortable and I started assisting the international students navigate money, navigate language, navigate shopping. I, I don't know if you understand this, but America sells a lot of soap. They soap for everything. Oh. <laughs> There's soap for everything. It is so small, but I need you to listen. There is soap for everything. There's soap for hair. There's soap for face. There is soap for lips. There is soap for body. There's soap for clothes. There's soap for dishes. There's soap for car. There's soap for floor. There is soap for counter. There is soap everywhere. Everything is soap. Wow. There's a lot of soap being sold in this country. I did not even think and, about that. And dog soap. Yeah. <laughs> dog soap. I mean... Oh soap. my goodness! Soap to clean electronic. It, it everything is a cleaner, a cleaner of some sort. So when you would go to a a, a supermarket, uh, let's say Walmart, you stand in an aisle, and there's so much soap. You're thinking, what is this? No, you cannot buy dish soap and shower dish soap. No, you cannot. It's not that you don't know. It's just that you grew up with the different kinds of elements. Yeah. And now there's so much. So I became a community advocate for the students. And then I, I joined the African Student Association where my sister had started, help started in ISU. And I felt a homage to her to be a part of that. And so that gave me another home from high school when I graduated to advocacy and being the president of the African Student Association and other positions that I took while I was in um, the University of I ISU, that is. And that was also another form of leadership that I had gotten from the initial investment of me from my small community in Blackfoot and my teachers that saw something in me. Mm. Yeah. Wow, Winnie, I did not even think about all the different soaps that we have. It's just like yeah. another form of consumerism, right? Like you need all yes. these different things in your life. Yes. <laughs> that would be completely overwhelming if you're not used to having to make that many choices. Maybe this is why I do get overwhelmed going to the store. Yes, and cereal. So many choices. I mean, how many cereal do I mean? <laughs> I mean, there is just so much. Yeah. America is very consumeristic, but I mean, it's what builds the engine, economic uh, mm. engine. So at the same time, you really can't complain. You should be wowed by the amount of money that gets made due to being marketed on. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's confusing for me, too, because I will tell I was living with my brother and his wife in college and I accidentally mm -hmm. put dish soap in the dishwasher instead of dishwasher soap. And it was just like an <gasps> explosion of bubbles in the kitchen. Like I really yes, messed it up. See, you cannot just put any soap. I felt really bad. Oh. <laughs> and and the, oh, you've forgotten the efficiency pod soaps. You cannot put any kind of soap in those high energy efficient washing machines. Oh, yes? yeah. You cannot just put any soap. You have to buy a specific soap. Oh. It's just soap everywhere. <laughs> my, my washer's too old I haven't had to worry about those yet so we'll see oh my gosh so you kind of stepped into this role of like cultural ambassador for other immigrants of I was giving back. Okay. I would see someone struggling and they were, see, the thing is we grew up in a culture where we don't believe in mental health, mm. right? And you are down and Idaho has a lot of seasonal depression. Mm -hmm. And you don't grow up with a culture of therapists and all this. And the therapy that you get when you're down is going to a friend's house. You know your neighbor. 
you know, your neighbor, you go and cook tea. You, your kids are watched by the neighbor. I was raised by the village. I was raised by the community. My parents would be like, ah, we are leaving. And they would leave me and my neighbors. We'll be back. And it's not negligence. It's, it takes a whole village to raise a child. It is literally that. Yeah. So you, when you're feeling down, you go to a friend that would cook tea. You would drink and talk about what's what, what's woeing you. You know, what are your woes? What are your successes? Or how are you feeling? Just relaxing. You move from that neighbor. You say, oh, oh, I haven't seen so-and-so on your way home. Let me go pass by and see what she's doing. Oh, she's, she's planting her kale. Oh, how are you? And while you're talking, you're helping her do this and that. So that was a form of organic traditional therapy. Mm. There is no organic traditional therapy. America lives to work instead of work to live. So you're getting up, go get a Starbucks because you don't have time to sit down. Uh, Lunch, oh my goodness, I need to go get a McDonald's because I need to get back to work or back to class. Oh my goodness, I don't have time to cook dinner. Let me go grab a fast something for the family you don't even sit at the dining table because oh maybe the kids spend half the time at school with the teachers they don't have a relationship with their parents per se because half their life they spend it with the school and the teachers when they come home there's so much homework you're doing homework and then you're buying food oh you need to go get enough sleep because your day is long again so when do you bond so there was a lot of seasonal depression not in a family dynamic, even as a sole student, who are your friends? Who is intellectually and emotionally mature for you to talk to? Everybody is busy. So the seasonal depression that happened here was I could see it and I had had friends and how to navigate it so that I felt that I was building a community. Wow. And they joined me and it wasn't just me doing it. Other people were doing it. I cannot take credit for that. Yeah, it was an effort, a group effort. Yeah, And that's how it's successful is if people are together. Uh So, Winnie, I'm curious if you were able to, in the way that you live here, in the way that you are raising your three boys, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, Have you been able to maintain that kind of lifestyle that has that organic therapy that you're talking about has it been hard to hang on to that here when systemically it's not the natural flow oh my goodness that is such a tough so first of all yes i have my three boys but i'm also have my niece and nephews with me too okay so i am called mamam doggo in our culture we when you have your you're the aunt you're not called just aunt you're called mama it's like mom but you're not the older mom you're the mom doggo which is mom young mom oh, yeah I like so i have six kids mm. uh, technically now with my niece and nephews including my three boys i'm a boy mom but now i'm a girl mom mm-hmm. and to answer your question in terms of how i organically have tried to navigate my kids is open an avenue of open conversation and exposing them to as much culture as i can uh for example when i have an event uh with culture for change or when i was the director of miss africa idaho i would have my kids go with me or if i have a business meeting usually when i have my kids are not in school i would all of them have tablets right hang on people say electronics are bad but to an extent you know everything is in moderation i would go to a meeting and I'd have them have headphones and they'll sit on a corner. And once my meeting is done, they can walk out with me. Sometimes they would listen into some of the meetings if it's not high confidential and as sensitive. And I have noticed that my kids have had an entrepreneurship mindset. 
So my eldest, his name is Val. He wants to be a CEO of his club and help me with culture for change. He wants to start a robotics Lego club here and he wants to choose his own board members. He said he wants to, he knows these terminologies, have his own board members and do ABC. So I involve them in my daily life. And my husband too, he's so busy, he would take them to work. He has the ability to take my kids to work too sometimes. Also, when I'm cooking, I involve them in that and my husband would help with the math. We are teaching Mm -hmm still at school, but I would say, oh, can you hand me this rice? And I'm, you know, automatic cooking rice. I don't need a recipe. I grew up without recipes. It's just put this, put this, put this, put that, right? But then my husband would come and say, how many cups of rice? Okay, how many cups of uh, of water? And then he would have be there with the measuring cups, doing the math and teaching, but then we are spending time together. Mm -hmm. So even though it is hurry, hurry, we are spending time together in the hurry, hurry. Mm. And we have been trying so hard. It's very hard. I'm not going to say it's easy. We have been trying very, very hard to make it not as boring and be with the times, especially with the technology that we have had. So I'm not saying it's easy, but if we involve my family in our day-to-day lives, then they don't feel as segregated from our family dynamics. Mm. Yeah. I love that. I love that working together. Yes. Um, when it's too like, hard though yeah. because they'd rather play video games. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I am like, don't have kids of my own, but I'm like, that seems like one of the hardest parts to navigate is the technology and like, when do they get a phone? When do they get social media? And like the battle. Getting started. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I want my kids to have, none of my kids have cell phones yet, but their friends do, but they do have tablets. But I also put a limit on it. They don't go to bed with their tablets. I have to see what they are watching because there's a lot of weirdness out there. Remember, I ran a teen youth program and the (laughs) things I hear, they start at 13. So, mm, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, you see a lot. I know it it can be really good. I was just with my nieces in their 10 and under and um, the eight year old was using Google Docs to write a story. She was writing fiction and using all of the colorful fonts and chapter breaks and sharing it with her classmates over Google Docs. And the other one had like a video game to do math. And so I'm like, okay, obviously there's some really good to come of it, but it's tricky once they get older, I think, to navigate yeah. the social No, this aspect. is a lot of good to come with it. Yeah, because, you know, you know, the visual, you know how I was saying that how I was in Blackfoot and my kids, even though I exposed them to so much culture, sometimes yeah. to visualize like the Maasai hat, Mm. and the mud hats and the bungalows and the big capital cities and things like that. Yes, when we were doing East Africa, Idaho, they would learn about the continent of Africa or when we're doing uh, cultural classes and things like that, they'll see all this. But when you have internet, you can put things on YouTube, then they can say, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. that looks like New York. Where is that? And they're like, ah, oh, no, that's not New York. Let me show you a tranquil beach in Guam, in, uh, Guam. or let me show you something in Dar es Salaam or the Indian Ocean, you know, uh, all around the world so they can understand that the way of life is not just in the United States, Mm -hmm. what they see, but the whole entire world is so different. And I try to cook different foods and I try to invite them in different, a lot of my friends are from all over the world to try different foods. Yes, they have sensitive taste buds, but I make sure they try Mm -hmm. something at least once and actually twice because the first time is tasting. Then the second time, try to make sure 
I don't force them, but I encourage it oh, aggressively. <laughs> aggressively encourage. That's awesome. Yeah. I love yeah, what you said lie. before this interview. You said when you have a new neighbor, one of the first questions you ask them is, what's your spice level? So you can cook food. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I try to bring that community back. Yeah. When I move to a new place, I'd go and say, hi, I'm your neighbor. Um, my name is so-and-so. And what is your spice level? I say, oh, well, that's a question to ask all right oh i would love to make you some traditional food oh wow see food bonds a lot of people food is a lot it's an international language of love Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter where you're from food is a powerful tool food is the reason for war food is the reason for friendship food is the reason why most people work it's really not money because you need fuel to feed yourself right mm-hmm. uh there's someone who's working really hard so you can eat foie gras i've been forced feeding a dog so you can eat a fatty liver i mean i haven't said foie gras anyway but that's fine you know there's someone who's like a contented life is they'll just rather have kale and ugali skumawiki and ugali I, that's just so food is such a delicate um, and powerful tool at the same time. So I use that. And when they say what their spice level is, I make a food item and I take it to them with the thought in mind that they will watch out for my kids and I'll watch out for their Mm -hmm. kids. Building that it, it is a security. Yeah. yeah. Not only that, it is a security blanket because see, remember now, I remember I'm black. I remember my kids are this. I remember that I need to build a relationship so they see my kids differently. And it is sad, but it's true. And other times it's not just that. It is also I would like to build a friendship. So it is not one reason why I ask. It's not two reasons why I ask. It is an onion and it's peeled layer by layer by layer to get a good flavoring Mm. yeah there's lots of thoughts to it well Winnie we have just a couple minutes left together today I'd love to hear a little bit more about your work with Culture for Change Foundation and how anyone listening here can learn more or be involved or reach out to you Yes, yes, yes. So as you've heard, Culture for Change Foundation is a grassroots nonprofit that caters to the women and girls and the youth in our community. As I was growing up here, it is a paying forward notion that I realized sometimes we are failing our youth in our community due to the programs that are available. Yeah, there are programs, but they don't cater to all the demographic. And if they do, what do they address? Are we telling people what to do or are they organically doing the survey? So Culture for Change does the listening sessions. That's how it was started, actually, Mm -hmm. doing listening sessions and asking the community, what can we do? What would you like? And how can we help? And how can you help us? So it's not just us. It is an organization that uh, builds a sustainability that's not fluffy, but it is a community equity investment. So when you do listening sessions, you would ask questions like, uh, what programs would you rather have? But we already have that program. Then they'll say, oh, because of this, this, we are not able to attend. Okay, you put a note on that. So do we reinvent the wheel or do we join forces with that other nonprofit and see if we can work together? If the other nonprofit or organization doesn't want to work with us, we create that organic um, semblance for sustainability. And you find out, is it sustainable? Can we add A, B, and C? So, for example, right now, we noticed that there was a lack of sewing and fashion 
in the state of Idaho and how it started, for example, with the Urban Cultural Fashion Show, which is one of our programs, is it was a simple task of trying to find a seamstress and someone to alter my outfits. Mm -hmm. And people were so overwhelmed, the ones that are already doing it, there is not enough seamstresses in the state of Idaho. Not alone that, people that are seamstresses are actually designers. So the first fashion show was a matter of the eureka moment, I keep saying, finding all these designers that were seamstresses. And some were actually designers, but the exposure wasn't as great. Mm -hmm. And saying, give me 10 outfits, I will find models for you. Now, that's how we started. So the Avant Cultural Fashion Show is one that we create, that designers have to create their clothes from scratch and their creativity right. and give them that platform. And then from that platform, not only the models, the community in itself and the vendors that would have or the designers, everything is all about art, culture, entrepreneurship, things like that. And so one of the things that Culture for Change does is that. And so when we did the fashion show, we thought, okay, there needs to be more designers. There needs to be more people to alter if your passion is not designing. So we started the sewing class. And it wasn't because that we thought, oh, let's do this. No, the community asked for it. Mm. So we started sewing classes. And I am happy to say that this summer, Twin Falls, had, we have 10 machines. All you have to do is show up, register. Right now, it is all free. It's donation-based. You can give a dollar. You can give 20. You can give 100. However you feel that it is a valuable class for you. We have a curriculum. We have a, a lesson plan. It is an it's our after school. So in Twin Falls, we had 10 students for the basic class and six students for the intermediate class. So that's a 16. And in Boise, we have 16 students. So in the state of Idaho, I am proud to say that we had 32 students this summer that took our sewing program. Wow, that's great. Is that the one yeah. that's happening here at Global Lounge in Boise? Yes. Oh, so great. there is a class at Global Lounge in Boise on Coal Road. And then in Twin Falls, there, one is happening at the Tidwell uh, Health Services building in there. We have an office and uh, classes there. And they are all free. They are only donation-based. So that's one of the things that the community was lacking. And I, I'm proud to say that we are one of the few in the entire state of Idaho that runs an actual school that teaches sewing to the community. You don't have to sign up for a grade or it's to the community as a service. Oh, Give back. Yeah, in community investment. Another thing that we do it is uh, Indian fabric painting classes. Actually, the teacher for the Indian fabric painting class was one of our students. And she came and said, you know, I would love to give back to this community and to what you guys are doing. I was I was at home and I would love to just be part of this. I said, okay, what would you like to do? And she said, well, back home in India, my aunt ran a school for this craft that we do. It's a traditional craft. And she explained about it. She said, well, write me a proposal. I've never written one. Well, I'll help you. So from all this, she was able to write a proposal or, or understand what a proposal entails. The budgeting of a proposal, it was approved. And now she teaches Indian fabric painting class and we will try and duplicate it in another region. But Every every twelve week, twelve week, no six weeks, eight weeks. Sorry, we have about six students per. It is such a tranquil class, a wow. zen moment. Yeah, it's so beautiful. We do financial training. We'll do youth training. Also, we are doing sex ed education. Wow. Because where we are going, we need that wealth of information. We are providing sex ed classes. 
for the community because those conversations need to be had with the social media now and as young as the kids are having access to information snapchat and all these things they are being exposed so much to not only predators and uh, what is a healthy relationship some of them don't even understand a partner uh, texting you ab- aggressively is not a sign of love but it, uh, it is an abusive relationship mm. it's those tiny little things that we catch and we make it organic with a facilitator and they just talk and we find safe spaces for them so those are some of the things that we do mm. the one of the, some of them there's quite a, yeah. a few more <laughs> but we are working on an open space of dancing freestyle dancing where they would come perform and then we would invite the parents to come and see their final performance but we're working on that that hasn't happened yet but we're working on that but we do quite a lot that is organic Mm -hmm. Uh, we just don't think about it just ourselves we have to involve the community it is a community organization yes well Winnie Mm -hmm. I am so impressed and inspired to hear about all of this i'm going to link in the show notes to your website and your email so people can yes support this and however makes sense to them or get involved and however makes sense to them yeah Um, we're always looking for volunteers if you want to help us financially too that's awesome uh we do all we are 501c3 or our funding comes from you the community so in terms of equity this is yours too it's not just culture for change. This is a community organization, and we are happy to be in this place. And thank you for inviting me to Mosaic. Yeah, it is quite you. the fabric. Yes. Thanks for being here. And as we're talking, I'm I'm just envisioning future ways we could partner with the Refugee Speakers Bureau and the storytelling that takes place there, and the power of storytelling and connecting people, and also the conference. I know you're at our last conference. We're expanding it to the Northwest Conference on Resettlement in October 2024. So I'm hoping we can continue to partner there. You're just a wonderful person for Idaho Uh that makes our state a better place. So thank you, Winnie, for all that you do. Oh, my goodness. Now I'm getting a little heated on my cheek. <laughs> People, you, you would get red. I, I get a little heated. I, I turn a teeny bit purple. You know? <laughs> it's a good look. A good I do look. blush. I do I do blush. It is, it is just not as visible. <laughs> well, thank you. Really good no, to connect No, no, thank you. you. Yes, and as I said, this is a community thing. And don't, don't ever think that you've done anything by yourself. Nobody does anything by themselves. There's an African saying, uh, one finger doesn't kill lie, a lies, you know, the lies in the head. You have to use another finger to squish it. Uh, you cannot use one finger. You have to use the two fingers to squish it or to build, to take it out. You cannot just use one finger to take it out. You have to use two fingers. Yeah. So it's, it's a weird negative, like but it's that. a positive thing. Yeah. Yes. I like that. Well, it's an honor to squish lice with you. So thank you. It's not, it is an honor to squish lice with you. <laughs> thank you, Winnie. All right. You have a good one. And thank you for having us. Thank you. You too. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Thank you for joining the conversation. For more information on how to be involved with refugee resettlement, please visit IdahoRefugees.org. Mosaics is produced by the Idaho Office for Refugees with grant support from the MJ Murdoch Charitable Trust. Music by the Afrosonics. Production in partnership with SB Studios.